Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where je suis Charlie. You can find us online at doubtcast.org or at freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. And you can listen to us on Public Reality Radio in Michigan on WPRR 1680 AM, 95.3 FM, and now on 90.1 FM in Clyde Township. And, of course, in Pontiac, Illinois, on WPJC 88.3 FM. And, of course, streaming at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio are my fellow Doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Hey, how's it going? Teen pop sensation Justin Schieber. I thought we were done with that intro. <laughs> we were. We were, and then I missed an episode, and you yelled at me for it, so I had to bring it back. Uh, and, of course, the rock god himself, Dr. Professor Luke Galen. No, I'm just as antiquated as Justin. Coming up in today's show, we've got some God Things Like You, polyatheism, and some props and shit list. But let's start off here by talking about the recent events in France at the offices of Charlie Hebdo. Obviously, the the attack on uh, Charlie Hebdo shocked the world and shocked many of us, and it was uh, sad. But I think it was also really exciting to see that this time around, there was a lot of public support behind free speech, Mm. behind the cartoonists' right to offend others. We saw all those demonstrations Mm. in, in Paris, and I thought that was a very inspiring thing to come out of this tragedy. I am a little upset that back here at home in America, the reaction was way more mixed. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of people who said, of course, you know, the murders are wrong, but then attached some sort of caveat that's victim blaming. Dan Finca from Camels with Hammers at Pathios Blogs, he wrote a very interesting analysis and takedown of a lot of the messages and memes that we're seeing out there. And uh, we decided to have him on the show to share some of what he has to say. Joining us now on the phone is uh, the birthday boy himself, Daniel Finca. Welcome and happy birthday, Dan. How old are you, Dan? I am 37, and this is the best birthday present ever. <laughs> that's, that's kind of sad. I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad you see it that way, because I was like, oh, no, we're asking him to get up and do an interview on his birthday. But that's Dan's commitment hmm. to getting good ideas out there. We brought you on, Dan, because you just did, um, I believe, uh, uh, other friend of the show, Hemet Mehta, referred to this as a Herculean effort. Um, wherein you responded to 16 of the worst Je suis Charlie memes that have shown up on the internet and then criticisms, uh, victim-blaming in some forms, for uh, the recent attacks there. And it is a masterful article. I was reading through it last night and going, I I can't say this stuff better than Dan. Why don't we try (laughs) to get Dan on the show? And then very last minute, we asked and you agreed. So thank you for that. Let's start off with what we keep on hearing. Freedom of speech is all good, but we really shouldn't use it to condemn religion or insult somebody's faith. There's several issues there. 
the, the very first thing is that the very nature of religious power is its air of untouchability and reverence. That's where it gets its social effect on people, is that you're not allowed to treat the reverent irreverently. That very dynamic means that religion of all things socially and psychologically to be challenged requires the right of conscience to be irreverent about it. So I'm not for you know, being cavalierly insulting in an interpersonal context, right? Mm -hmm. You shouldn't go in to people's homes and say, what's this stupid thing, you know, <laughs> looking at their religious, you know, paraphernalia. When you're a visitor in a, in a, in a house of worship, you should be respectful as a person. Mm -hmm. But if in the whole discourse, in the whole culture, no one ever has that room to have other spheres and zones and contexts in which it is okay to express your own irreverence, then the irreligious will have to treat the religious things as holy, because holy means set apart, right? It means revered and uncriticizable. It de facto puts this onus on the non-believer to treat religious objects religiously, and we, we can't allow that. And the other thing is that the media can't do that in the sense that if it doesn't want to go out and offend everyone, New York Times doesn't need to write editorials that go out of their way to offend Islam. But... If you have images that are news stories, mm -hmm. and the only thing offensive about them, if they're straightforward pictures of Muhammad, is the religious injunction, well, then that's like saying that the New York Times has to not spell out the word God anymore, because right. Jews aren't allowed to spell that out. It's the New York Times taking a very particular kind of religious offense as a reason to rearrange its whole way of doing things, this would mean, like, what, no pork advertisements, you know, no spelling out the word God, no right. doing anything that anyone could say within their religion would be something they couldn't do. I'm not saying New York Times has to endorse the images, but they run the God Hates Fag signs, right, pictures right. of that. Exactly. Why can't they run pictures of Muhammad and let other people decide whether or not that's offensive? What's interesting to me, too, is news outlets will run pictures of the massacre, will show video of, of the shootout that took place mm -hmm. afterwards, but they won't show cartoons yeah. that led to it. Yeah. One of yeah. those is a bit more disturbing than the other. Yeah. yeah. As you pointed out, this can get quite ridiculous. You talked about on your blog the book The Cartoons That Shocked the World, which was a scholarly book mm -hmm. that was about the whole incident with the original uh, Danish cartoonists. The publisher refused to publish the cartoons that the book was about. You, you couldn't even go in, back into the reference section and see them. That That – suggests that what's going on here is a little bit more than just trying to be respectful to Muslims' feelings. Absolutely. It almost suggests cowardice. And that's exactly what the issue was. You know, Viacom wasn't uh, unwilling to air Muhammad as one of the super friends on South Park mm -hmm. because of an innate interest in, you know, Islamic feelings uh, about the depiction <laughs> of the Prophet. And what South Park wound up doing when they wound up doing episodes defiant of free speech restrictions, and they showed Jesus and George W. Bush in, you know, uh, degrading ways, and then they just showed, they just wanted to just show Muhammad, that's it. <laughs> nothing degrading, nothing offensive beyond the prohibition. You wind up with Viacom refusing to air the image, and that was explicitly under terrorist threat. The, the documentary filmmaker 
Theo Van Gogh had been killed in the streets in 2005. And in 2006, when there were rumblings about these cartoons, the media was terrified for their assets. They were terrified for their employees. Out of fear, they created this norm against depicting Muhammad, not just Muhammad in a degrading sexual position, but but depicting him at all. The change was fear. The New York Times is claiming that it was a matter of not wanting to offend the Muslim family in Brooklyn. But this is the same New York Times that for 10 years was describing torture as an enhanced interrogation technique. Mm-hmm. You know, because, the, you know, Muslims being tortured, that doesn't offend. You know, it doesn't offend that they won't call torture torture when it's done to Muslims, but they'll call the same techniques torture if it's done by Muslims. That's not offensive to the New York Times. <laughs> What's offensive, what terrorists are threatening the New York Times over, that's when the New York Times suddenly has a sense of decorum. And this means that if we all obey this, if we all say, well, we can't let people get killed, then the terrorists have created a new norm in our society. Mm-hmm. Like the whole the let the terrorists win thing, you know, it's usually a lie and a bully cliche of the right, but it's really true here. If our, if our norms get rewritten to accommodate this fear, then, yeah, you really, literally, you've, you've acquiesced to terrorist demands. And for free press to do that is offensive. There's an example of this spreading where the AP now just pulled images of the Piss Christ, which is, um, you know, controversial work of art, a crucifix in a jar of urine. And, you know, that work of art, the artist says what it's about, is to depict Jesus in the earthly elements, right? And that's what the incarnation's about. The incarnation is about God can be down here in the muck with humanity. And right. Je- Jesus, Jesus could be crucified. God could be murdered, right? Yeah. I mean, the imagery of, of a god being murdered could be offensive to the right religious adherent, but to Christians, suddenly this way of representing the Incarnation, because it's not sanctioned by central authority, is not religious. So it's even a religious conscience. It's a religious conscience of the maker of this Christ, to be able to express his views on Jesus, or a Muslim to express their uh, rejection of the idolatry of, of Muhammad. Because the, the idea behind not showing Muhammad is supposed to be a rejection of graven images. It's supposed to be a rejection of creating images that are worshipped. And so a satirical rendering is the opposite of yeah. venerating and worshipping Muhammad. You know, I was thinking about that quite a bit, that if the whole purpose of the prohibition on images of Muhammad is to avoid idolatry, you know, let's not make an idol out of a person. Is it not idolatry, in a, in a sense, to elevate that image as it's so important we would kill that over it? Kill. Yeah. it? It sure seems like idolatry to me. But let's say, I mean, a lot of people recognize we do need to allow freedom of speech, and many people recognize that even blasphemy should be covered under that. But they will say, what we're doing is we're valorizing these cartoonists. We're, we're kind of making them out to be heroes and martyrs, and they don't deserve to be called heroes. What do you think about that objection? Because it's it's one thing to fight for our right to blaspheme. It's quite another to to depict it as a noble thing or a good that we must have in our society. Yeah, and what I would say to that is two things. Number one, they deliberately ran the images on principle after other media outlets weren't in 2006. They deliberately kept showing images when they were being threatened with violence. They knew their lives were at risk. There was actually a firebombing on their offices 
in 2011. These were people who every time they did it, and now they're doing it again with the new cover, they knew that they were putting themselves in the line of a direct terrorist threat. And when the rest of the media had ducked, because they were afraid, these people kept their heads up and became a target. And that, I like that metaphor, by the yeah, way, Dan. This isn't like a random person expresses their views online, not sensing any danger at all, and happens to get killed for it. I mean, these were people who, who deliberately baited not Muslims, they baited terrorists. Yes, they knew right. they were on a hit list. Mm -hmm. And they still behaved in that way because the right to expression was important. And Even if you think that they crossed the line into racism, which I don't think they do, but if you thought that, they still knew they were putting their lives on the line. I, I don't see how you, you can like, try and undercut their valorism in that respect. There's a, a great quote that came out from the, the editor, who is also one of the cartoonists of the paper, who said, obviously before the fact, it was after the, the 2011 firebombing of their office, he said, I don't have kids, no wife, no car, no credit. Maybe it's a little pompous to say, but I'd rather die standing than live on my knees. He knew oh. he was a target. He knew there was no other way for them to get to him except to get to him. And he knew that was there, and he still did it. Not to piss people off, but because this was important. And he was, like you said, he's targeting terrorists. He's not targeting Islam. He was targeting the people who commit violence in the name of Islam. Right, and you know, in fact, the first one of the images was Muhammad after the terrorists, you know, threaten them and attack them. They have an image of Muhammad saying, "It's hard to be followed by jerks." Now, that, <laughs> that image is actually, though, that's an image which dis disclaims Muhammad from the extremists. Absolutely, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, if it wasn't the depiction of Muhammad issue, that would be like Christians having. Jesus must be ashamed of us, right? right. You know, how we're behaving if, if, if a Christian did something terrible. So the content of it was uh, not targeting Muslims as Muslims. It was targeting Muhammad as a clerical figure. And one of the reasons I bring it up at this point is because when we ask if they were heroes, a lot of the left-wing critique is saying, you know, the secularist in France is privileged, and the, marg and the Muslims in France are marginalized. And, and that that's is true. true, and there yeah. is some, uh, there's some genuine oppression. There's some things that maybe we as harder core secularists might be more sympathetic to that's being called oppression. But there's definitely bigotry and a, you come from this region, we don't trust you because you're foreign, and, and your foreign religion gets a lot of blame. I get that. But on the other scale of it, there's three major considerations. One is that Muhammad himself is not marginalized. He has power over billions of people. And an outlet which presents a anti-clerical kind of approach to Muhammad can support those stifled, more liberal Muslims who are more secularized and, and feel trapped in their community, and, or, or ex-Muslims. You know, to be able to see Muhammad be skewered helps them against the more reactionary forces within their own community. Mm. And we have to realize that worldwide, atheism is a marginalized position. It doesn't matter if France is an enclave of extreme secularism. In the global picture we're looking at, they're not. It's a marginalized position, and these guys were literally targets of a global discourse. When you look at it that way, there's a huge erasing of the issue of the marginalization of apostates and atheists. There's so much discussion that, well, there's a right to be offensive. 
But there's not a lot of discussion about why atheism and anti-clericalism is assumed to be by default an unpleasant and offensive thing, whereas the Quran and the Bible are, are assumed to be inherently good. All the evils in those books aren't held against those faiths in the common public discourse. But anything that's offensive to believers, despite all the offensive things those books say about women and gays and atheists, those offensive things don't matter. But the anti-clerical pushback is inherently offensive, but we'll defend it anyway. We have to kind of challenge that whole privileged mindset. And the third part of that is there's a lot of saying, well, you can't support this stuff because on the global scale, Muslims are under Western foot. Mm. And I can understand that. But in the global discourse, there's also pushes for blasphemy laws at the UN. And this setting our moral norms to where we're self-censoring gives validation to codified suppression of blasphemy. On the global level, when people say, well, Charlie Hebdo aren't really victims because, look, they're part of the West and the West has a war machine against the Muslims. It's conflating the cartoonists with the war machine. Right. <laughs> because the West is this monolithic thing. And it's not recognizing, it, it, it's just as bad to me as conflating the average Muslim with a terrorist to say that these cartoonists deserve it because the West has a war machine. As though these cartoonists weren't anti militaristic, as though these cartoonists weren't basically people of the left who defended Muslims as Muslims, as immigrants and only we're going after the clericalism. And what they're doing is, by creating a narrative in which the only way to look at Muslim treatment in the West is never in terms of religious criticism as a valid category, but everything is merely a function of economics and, and global power, then that means that, that, that these repressive regimes can do things like say, oh, any attempt to put democracy in here is an attempt to oppress us. Any attempt to demand religious rights uh, for minority religions or atheists or ex-Muslims is, or blasphemers, oh, that's all Western imposition, part of the war machine. We have to be able to separate criticism of religious imposition from Western imperialism. They're both huge issues, and seeing every criticism of religion as a function of Western imperialism undermines the ability to stand up for apostate rights, stand up for uh, free thought and democracy in the Arab world. So there is a, a critique that's related to that, which focuses on the amount of time in the media that we spend covering, you know, even this Charlie Hebdo case versus other atrocities at a much larger scale. We had, for example, the massacre in Nigeria mm -hmm. by Boko Haram. You know, I hear it because I listen to NPR and the right, BBC, right. so I'm like, what do you mean people aren't covering yeah. it? But apparently on the, uh, on the TV news landscape, you don't hear much about this stuff. That could have been thousands of people who were killed. What do you think about, uh, you know, the, the criticism just that we're focusing too much on these cartoons, not the global problem of terrorism? Well, you know, we could also say we're focusing too much on these cartoons and not the victim of the Saudi government getting, you know, lashed in the public square yeah. for having the temerity to write a liberal atheist blog. The reason certain stories are central in our consciousness is because they raise these dilemmas. They raise arguments for us. And there are atrocities every day. Uh, the Western media reports on ISIS, reported on Boko Haram. I mean, Boko Haram wouldn't have been on Charlie Hebdo's cover if it was being ignored, right, in, in a controversial picture. 
and there's atrocities every day. There's not much for us to do except, oh, wow, how horrible. You know, this is heinous and horrific. And we're not going to write articles arguing about how, whether or not it's horrific and heinous. We'll just acknowledge it's horrific and heinous and do what, right? You know, like this, whereas, whereas the reason we're arguing, the reason that there's so much about this is because it's just a story that has fault lines. Bigger principles that are actually in, in doubt are in play, whereas no one in the West doubts that what's been done in Nigeria is absolutely heinous and horrific. I, I also think that one of the reasons why this particular story is getting so much play in the media is because it's about the media, and it gives the the rest of the media a chance to really pat themselves on the back. I mean, how many newspapers and TV stations were running with the Je suis Charlie and the very same organizations that were too afraid to run the comics are saying, oh yeah, freedom of speech is so important, and... They, these guys stood up for freedom of speech, said the cowards who wouldn't stand up for freedom of speech. But it's like how writers write about writers. You have the media talking about media. I feel like that's why it's a little bit of a self-obsession for them. Yeah, that could be part of it, too. I'm not sure. So in the end, I think you've, you've addressed these claims wonderfully on your blog. I wanted to end on a, on a passage from your blog that I thought was particularly compelling. And where you address just kind of the subtle victim blaming that we're hearing all around. I mean, even from the Pope, even we even have Pope Francis saying free speech is is a right, but if you uh, if you insult somebody, you're going to get a punch. I was I was so starting to like Pope Francis too. I like the fact that he talked about punching someone. I just didn't like the reason why. You know, he did used to uh, be a bouncer. But, so. <laughs> and I love it for one named after Francis of Assisi, who's done this. I love it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. And uh, you point out that a lot of a lot of the those statements like that are you know subtle forms of victim blaming. I I, I loved how you talked about the distinction between between what appears to be two identical phrases. The murder was wrong, but the speech was offensive versus the speech was offensive, but murder is wrong. Those may seem like identical statements, but you don't think so. Yeah, because it goes, you know, really what happens is after the but, I mean, I don't like when people say after the but, you negate everything that's said before it. Because I think it can be sincere to a degree. But I think after the but, you find what someone's real agitation is, what they think the real problem is. And they can also create false equivalences. You know, because when you say, like there was one that said, you know, this kind of intolerance that would kill cartoonists is unacceptable, but it's also unacceptable, the intolerance displayed by the cartoonists. Well, if you don't distinguish what kind of unacceptable is what Charlie Hebdo did, equivalent to capital murder, you know, (laughs) I mean, you know, so that false equivalence putting them in the same sentence is a problem. And the other thing I think what you're getting at is you can, you can acknowledge that you really found them offensive. And you can make that clear. Look, I'm not supporting these cartoons, but nobody should be murdered. That sends a different message than nobody should be murdered, but mm-hmm. look how offensive it was, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah. look how they were goading these people. Just think about the, the paradigm case. It's less controversial. She was wearing a provocative dress, but that is no excuse to rape anyone. Mm-hmm. There is no excuse to rape anyone, but she was wearing a provocative dress. Yeah. <laughs> if you can't hear the difference about, about how the victim blaming happens by which one comes after. And, and the other final thing on that is that it's possible to say that you support a cause 
even if it was used terrorism to support it. Maybe you believe the Palestinian cause is just, and you denounce Palestinian terrorism, but you, th- but you want to say something like, you know, I denounce uh, the terrorism here, but we also must remember that Israel did this or this, also violent. You know, in that sort of case, okay, you're showing two violences. You might be saying you're more worried about Israel's behaviors than Palestine's, but you're at least comparing two violences. Mm-hmm. To be comparing murder to mere blasphemy by a cartoonist mm-hmm. is heinous. And yeah. the only way they're able to do that is by making these cartoonists culpable for everything the Western war machine does, as though they're the same people, and as though their cartoons are equivalent to imperialism, and they're not. I actually saw that commentary in cartoon form that I really appreciated. It was a drawing of an AK-47 with bullets coming out, and it was shooting a pencil. On the cartoon, it said, but he drew first. Right. Just illustrating the absurdity of, of drawing an equivalence between these two evils. Dan Finca, as always, I really appreciate what you have to say, and I'm thrilled that you were able to join us on the show. Tell us more about Camels with Hammers, your blog, and some of the other projects you're doing so our listeners can check you out if they haven't already. Thanks. Camels with Hammers, it's a blog where I talk about philosophy. Uh, I'm a a moral philosophy guy, and I love talking about atheism, and so those are things I emphasize, and I develop, uh, you know, my own. I'm a professional philosopher. I got my PhD from Fordham, and I, um, I developed my own sort of novel twist on a meta-ethical and normative ethical theory called empowerment ethics. And um, I teach online um, interactive personal classes, not like, you know, um, canned lectures, not, you know, do the reading and, re- you know, and fill out a, uh, an assignment sheet and send it to the professor. I recreate the you know, the small group, one or two, three students at a time, sometimes five, together with the professor, led by the students' interests. And I teach philosophy like that, and awesome. people can uh, find out about that by going to com. And uh, my last name is F-I-N-C-K-E, so Finke, uh, com. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us, and hopefully, uh, if if you're up for it, uh, we'd love to have you back on again to talk about your ethics sometime. I've been dying to come on the show anytime. Freedom of expression is important, but a lot of Muslims, even in France, are not getting freedom of expression. The right to wear the veil Mm -hmm. France has a very uh, weird relationship with freedom of speech. Right. They have a concept, laïcité, that's beyond separation of church and state. It's Mm -hmm. it's an attitude that you should be actively encouraged to suppress religious identity. I mean, a lot of that stems back from the anti-clerical, anti-Catholic church. Sure. So the concept of laïcité is not necessarily anti-Muslim. No. It was developed as, you know, that the church was so huge in France's history. When you have a country with so many years of history, you've got a lot of baggage. Yeah, and so they deliberately designed to say, you know, the Catholic Church can't run the show anymore. But now it takes on a different meaning with Islam. Enforcing laicite is seen as being on a collision course with what many Muslim immigrants believe to be their values. That is, if Mm -hmm. if I'm not allowed to wear my veil or have signs of my, my Muslim identity and this and that, and the secular state trumps all that, well, then what am I? Yeah, and 
And then there's yeah. another level of, of French history where they have this very difficult relationship with Muslim immigrants because sure. of Algiers and because of yeah. these French-occupied places. They have there's a lot of Muslims in France, but they've not been treated well by the French for no. a long time. You have you have fifty percent of the of the prisons. I heard a statistic. Fifty so percent get- of the prisons are are occupied by Muslims. Right. So we often hear this false dichotomy uh, that tries to say either religion is responsible or the political or social situation is responsible. I think sometimes the role religion plays is is underestimated, but there are these other social realities that that play in. The two are very richly intertwined, mm-hmm. and that's going to be the subject of this episode's God Thinks Like You. That previous segment of the show focused a lot on, properly so, on the victims of the terrorist attack and, mm-hmm. and, and how that interacts with their freedom to say what they want to say. But I'm going to focus a little bit more, as psychologists are want to do, with the combination of factors that promotes the attackers. What is it that motivates the people to think that that's an acceptable course of action? You know, I should say right off at the bat that sometimes this is a complicated area because you'd want to then say, well, is this really a, a murder attack where you have thugs shooting people they don't like? Or is it religion the primarily motivating factor where it's from a, some perspectives, would be a valiant act to strike back against people who criticize your religion and you're a martyr. Or were they really even tried? Did they care whether they died or not? Is it equivalent to a suicide bombing where they just wanted to go out in a blaze of glory? Or was it preferred to survive just like everybody else would and they, you know, it didn't turn out in their favor? So one thing we should mention off the bat is that not all acts that have a terrorist label are necessarily similarly motivated Mm. From the mm-hmm. standpoint of, you know, is this the same as Mohammed Atta flying a plane into the World Trade Center? Is this the same as Major Hassan shooting up the base in Texas? Right. We're sort of lumping things together because it's a Muslim perpetrator and it's you know a Western victim. Right. But be that as it may, you might be f- familiar with the concept of the fundamental attribution error. Mm-hmm. That is the tendency for people to focus quickly and too much so on the personal characteristics, yep. the disposition of the person rather than the context. Well, there's a debate amongst anti-terror experts and psychologists about where to put, in our equation of cause and effect, where to put the emphasis on you know, the cause of the, these sorts of attacks and then obviously efforts to, to minimize them. Is it the perpetrators, that is, these guys were wingnuts, thugs, sociopaths, mentally ill? Was it the context, religion, France's unemployment? And we just threw off just in the mm-hmm. past few minutes, yeah. all, all across the board, if you want to sort of list them on a continuum of personal factors, dispositional factors, community factors, all the way up to sociology and, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. It, and so the question is, like, what are the real key drivers here? Yeah. And people don't agree, I guess, is the, the bottom line. This, there's no clear answer. The, the experts fight amongst themselves. A person has a cause du jour. We see, we see what we want to see. <laughs> I'm going to say, Sam Harris is pretty clear on the cause of this. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, I think there's a tendency for us because of our game here that we focus on the religious thing right. aspect. It's it's fundamentalism, um, but other people focus on the dispositions of the identities of people who do these things. So, for example, these particular guys are just representative of a certain type of person, marginalized, maybe thuggish backgrounds. We know that the uh, the brothers were used to be petty criminal, pot smoker dealer guys. You know, they were pizza delivery guys before they started getting involved with pizza this. Pizza delivery guys are the worst. 
I always suspect them of terrorism. I'm surprised to to hear uh, pot smoker and pizza delivery person used in such close association. I feel like it's never been done before. Yeah. I think those go together. What do you Oh, he's being sarcastic. Oh, yeah. oh, there was a book that came out in 2013 by a guy named Adam Lankford, L A N K F O R D, called uh, the the myth of martyrdom. Mm-hmm. What really drives suicide bombers, rampage shooters and other self-destructive killers, which you can see by the subtitle is with the myth and the other things, he's lumping together people who end up who, who attack but who end up killing themselves in with other suicides. Essentially, he's saying that these people are like Cleveland and Eric Harris, where they made an, they did an attack, yeah. mm-hmm. they went out in a blaze of glory and, and killed themselves, or whatever, and that that's essentially the same. And that Langford's argument is that the religious part is incidental. Hmm. That is, hmm. these people might have said it's because of Islam. I'm killing people, and then the cops they essentially committed suicide. But really, by cops. they were just looking for a a way to kill themselves and chose this. So, Go out in a blaze of glory. So he's done these thing. psychological autopsies, I guess, because they're dead. But of people like Mohammed Atta, the World Trade Center pilot lead guy, mm-hmm. uh, people like Palestinian suicide bombers who he's interviewed, people who. Their bomb didn't go off, and so they're in prison, and so you have access to some of these people. But you can also go back and ask their relatives. And the conclusion that Langford comes to is that these are essentially mentally ill people. They're sort of sad sacks. They don't see their life as having a lot of options, mm. similar to other suicides. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that their method just happens to mix in some elements of religion and politics. But essentially, the dis- I guess this is an extreme dispositional argument, is that the primary cause for this sort of thing is – that they are suicidal or they just don't care. They don't perceive their life as having options. And so yeah. this happens to be a way that they can go out and have some significance to their They drive. might have just shot up a convenience store, but because they instead got attracted to Islam, they express their, their death wish in that way. Uh, but I don't know. I was reading f- through Lankford's paper version of his ideas and – I mean, he certainly did find a lot of very interesting evidence about about these individuals that showed a history of depression, you know, a lot of warning signs early on. But I couldn't help but to think while I was reading it that a lot of this could be confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. We're just – we're looking for this and so we're identifying all the information that goes along right. with it. Is there not other evidence that points in the other direction that would would count against this idea? And in fact, uh, if you look at his – the summary of his view and the reviews of his book, other social psychologists have been all over this guy like mud on a pig. As they say, in that they – for that selectivity bias that he's looking at at subsamples that might fit his theory or just outright he's sort of downplaying elements that – like let's take Muhammad Atta. You could look at him as being a sad sack guy. He had, you know, his personality very difficult and extremely introverted, you know. And some people have emphasized he's basically downright depressed, mm-hmm. uh, and that uh, the involvement with Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda gave him a direction to life. And but he was still more or less suicidal and disturbed to begin with. But other people have looked at his case and concluded kind of opposite things that he was, in, you know, a together at least together enough to be an, an engineer. Uh, relatively, you know, mm-hmm. sophisticated person, and that, et cetera, that you can look at other cases of these, like it's the mental illness part was not predominant, and that it's mm-hmm. other factors like. Yeah. So here's an example of, of a more situationist person, uh, like Scott Atran. He's a, a person who studies terrorists, but also you might have 
be familiar with his work in evolutionary psychology, In Gods We Trust, was one of the early Ev Psych and religion books. He's an example who looks at things like group identity as driving these things. So uh, some of Atrine's theories are that you have, you know, some of the things that we've been talking about is that you have people who are loyal to a collective identity, in this mm. case fundamentalist Islam or Islamism, and that they have a commitment to what's called fictive kin. If not their actual kin, they see their, what's the uh, phrase in Islam, the ummah, the broader community mm-hmm. of believers, is your kin. And so when you hear about Iraq wars and Abu Ghraib torture, do you take that as an assault to your fictive family? That's you know a, a blow against you, mm-hmm. and that, that what motivates extremism and attacks and suicide bombings and things like that are essentially loyalty to a group of people that you perceive to be intimate peers. Western guys writing cartoons uh, that are blasphemous, it's an assault to their group identity, mm-hmm. their, sac- yeah. their sacred group identity. So another example of this is uh, Jeremy Ginges is a guy who talks about sacred values. I think we mentioned his work a while back in the show because he had a study where people, when you try to negotiate on a factual business-like basis with what other people perceive to be as a sacred a sacred mm-hmm. cause, it actually leads to them being further entrenched. Yeah. So, for mm-hmm. example, if I said, well, you know, if I could buy an organ from you or buy a child, or in the case of the Palestinian conflict, why don't we just have a land swap? For those people who sacralize the land, like Israeli settlers and Palestinians, whatever, they perceive factual bargaining as an affront because they perceive that as a, what they really want is you to recognize that the value is sacred to them. Mm-hmm. So Ginja's account for a lot of these terrorist things is the reason they get so pissed off about attacking people is, just like we mentioned, they perceive the, the image of Muhammad as being a sacred value that's not negotiable. That's like They don't give a rip whether we say things like you have to accept secularism if you're going to live in France. Mm-hmm. They would say they, the, they obviously view that as a blaspheme that's an affront to their identity that must be avenged. Luke, call me a pessimist, but I don't know these different, uh, you know, these different kind of posits of explanations that emphasize different aspects of, of the individual uh, or you know the society at large. Um, do you think it's really possible to create this group and then you know pull out a more prominent factor, mm-hmm. or is it kind of going to be a wishwash of each of these things? It, it seems to I'm, I'm skeptical that. You know that the group identification uh, is going to be seen as as that much more significant. And personally, I tend to view it as that that it's like an algebra equation where, sure. where you have each factor and you can weight it variously depending on the situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in any given bombing or attack or whatever, uh, you might have this factor being more predominant and not so much of the other factor. Yeah. Another one, the reverse of the case, but that if you start kicking up risk factors, it's sort of like a, a an additional aspect. You know, you start naming them off. Do you have? Do you come from an environment that's, you know, where where religion is sacralized? Do you have a, no other things going on in your life where that's perceived as your identity? You right. can sort of add that up as in any given thing. For whatever combination, yours might be different than mine, but we both might be high risk yeah. because of different. Factors. And I would also think there might be something importantly different from you know, as as Jeremy was saying that you know these people who you know might otherwise have just shot up a convenience store, instead they're because they're associated with this group, they're going to do something more elaborate. Sure. Seems to me like the kind of degree of planning and forethought in, in things like this is a is going to be a well. Another interesting twist to this is we have to separate out. This makes it even more complex. Separate out the movers and shakers from the ground troops, mm-hmm. okay. who yeah. might have different motivations. So gotcha. one of the points in a lot of these researchers is that some of the people that strap on the bomb or pick up the gun mm-hmm. are essentially tools. 
Right. Well, they're the expendable is, troops because their life is, you know, they're willing to like, oh, I got nothing going. And in fact, some people overtly, the higher-ups, overtly mm-hmm. manipulate and pick these they people. They talk about that even with Columbine, where, uh, and I, I forget which one, but one of them was very much the leader and the other was just Eric kind Harris of, yeah. was presumed to be more psychopathic there you go whereas yes. Dylan or like the Boston bombings. yeah he was just kind of he just did it because it was it gave his life something whereas Eric Harris was psychopathic yeah so let's I use the example of Muhammad Atta he mm-hmm. was sort of the leader of the group of hijackers but some of these other ones were essentially muscle yeah. so right. it, it might be the case that you have for example leaders that pick out these ground troops as being these are men, maybe mentally unstable right people who have suffered a loss in their life where they are suicidal anyway. So it's but that the guys way by who design. Them into, tr- into battle might, the guys who got the money said, okay, we're going to indoctrinate people like this French group. Right. Apparently there were people who were organizing cliques of these people. They would have a little training things in the park mm-hmm. and, and spouting off some simplistic uh, uh, ideology, but they had to get the money from somewhere. Right. They mm-hmm. had to get the instructions, and some of these things, like you mentioned, were carefully planned. Yeah. And, and, and so we have to distinguish between the motivations of the people who might carry them out Mm-hmm. Versus the people who might assist them and plan them might be somewhat a different mixture. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We so, can't take it on as a single yeah. cause, lumping all of these things together. Well, we see this all the time. I mean, clearly, if you're, let's say, a conservative in America, you tend to focus on certain set of factors that support your worldview. Mm -hmm. If you're a liberal hippie, it's all society's problem. You tend to focus on those things. One does not just start off like, oh, I really need I really need friends. I just I don't understand myself. I I think I'm going to join a group that expresses my values and and straps on a bomb the next week. Right. It's Mm -hmm. it's a deliberate planning. But I will say uh, one of these uh, papers you shared with us by Michael Hogg, From Uncertainty to Extremism, provided a pretty interesting blueprint of how that could flow. Hogg's work is on uh, the interaction, rather, between the group and the individual. One of the terms that that he uses a lot is called – in group research, it's used – is called entitivity. The degree to which a group is not just some random group that you might play, you know, shuffleboard with, but highly entitive groups are groups that have – a clear goal, a clear mm-hmm. focus that have boundaries between you and people who aren't in the group. So obviously for what we, we talk about in this podcast, religion, especially extreme religion groups like fundamentalist groups are highly high on the entitivity in that they provide a sense of certainty such that if you're a person who might be unclear and uncertain about your life, and our listeners might remember from previous podcasts, this is in the whole mode of like compensatory theories of like control, social identity, and then meaning and certainty. If you are uncertain about your goals, your life, uh, what's true and what's not true, your your identity, if you can find a group that is high in those factors, that has clear boundaries and clear identity, that gives you a sense of purpose. And it's a bi-directional theory is, is what's neat about it because it explains why people join those groups. But it also explains why an attack on the group is taken so personally mm, by yeah. these people. That is, to use an example with us, atheism as a general group is not really high on entitivity. If you say Richard Dawkins is a, is a sucks, or if you say you know uh, the Reasonable Doubts podcast, they're all wrong. A lot of people might not take that particularly seriously as a personal attack because they don't identify. It's Shut not, your it's mouth. A, it's a fir- yes. Well, some people more than others. In all seriousness, we can think of some people who might 
interpret their lack of religion more highly on those factors. Sure. But for other people, it's not partic- mm-hmm. it's not like a fundamentalist church where if I say you know Jesus didn't rise from the dead or here's a picture of the Muhammad where <gasps> that's my own central identity you're messing right, with, right, man. Because right. if you think about it from an atheist perspective, what will we really get riled up about? What is it that we would get upset about? <laughs> Religion. <Higgs boat. laughs> that's not to say that an atheist might not have another source of identity like your family maybe yep. or right. you know your mama type things. You would have the same reaction. But, but for people who are uncertain and have been given a sense of certainty, let's take these thugs uh, in France. They're nobodies, pizza delivery guys in and out of prison. Suddenly you have a movement of people saying, you know what, you're oppressed. Your religion is the correct religion. And if you follow it, you're going to be best friends with the creator of the universe and all that sort of nonsense. Mm -hmm. You've just given them a sense of clarity to their life that they hadn't had before. So that... When somebody comes along and, and is, you know, puckishly making fun of your religion by drawing cartoons, it's not just, oh, shrug it off, or the Taylor Swift theory of shake it off. Uh, it, it, it is, that's, <laughs> now, if that's wrong, if you can just say Mohammed's a stick figure, what does that say about my certainty? Which, by the way, my profile picture on yeah. Facebook right now is Mohammed has a stick figure. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, you, if somebody can, if some idiot, Western secular guy can come along and poke fun at my sacred values, what does that say about the me- entire meaning of my existence? Then? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the the other thing I really liked about this study is that it captured both the social psychological factors and the the religious background beliefs. Uh, and part of the idea was that we respond to uncertainty in different ways. And if the uncertainty especially involves our self identity, self uncertainty or uncertainty about our fate and these other things, you know, if that's at a very high level. Sometimes people look for groups of a more extreme nature, highly distinctive groups, they're saying, you know, that are intolerant of dissent, that have rigid structures, that have strong directive leadership and an all-encompassing ideology. Those types of totalist groups, as they're calling it in the, in the article, are particularly alluring to somebody who's in a really bad place with their self-identity. Yeah, it explains a lot about religion, but it doesn't have to be because, I mean, you could think of, in extreme situations, you could think of some secular ideologies that do that too, like Nazism in the 20s and 30s. If you're German, your country's been utterly defeated, inflation is going around, you know, you have no sense of, you're being humiliated by other people. There's also a strong sense also of victimhood and humiliation Mm -hmm. that the group comes along and says, no, no, you're special. You're a member of a master race that goes back mm-hmm. into antiquity, your Teutonic Knights, well, it's pretty much like a religion. Yeah. And it gives you a sense of certainty. I mean, I, to quote you know, the Lebowski, nihilism, you know, you can say what you want about national socialism, but at least it's an ethos. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think in that there's, though, there's kind of a handy way of thinking about the difference between a fundamentalist Islam and you know, a more moderate Islam and what draws people to one or the other, because you have the moderates looking at this and going, this isn't my religion. This this is not what Islam truly is. But I'm guessing the moderates probably tend to be better off. They probably tend to not have as much threatening their core identity. Yeah. They're not the people going on in their life. They would have never been attracted to Islam for those reasons. Right. Well, even in our country, too, the people that are likely to get the most up in the arms about things, I mean, let's face it, are often marginalized people where their religion is all they have. Right. That's their sense. If you're some kind of like a bumpkin down on his luck and you find this church that's charismatic, you have friends and all that, things like that, and here comes some jerk atheist insulting your sacred values, you're going to take it a lot more personally than, let's say, a well-off 
Unitarian or a Methodist right, or something right. like that. They were saying in the article, you know, you could see this in college campus groups of, of various kinds, like the most political, the most extreme, like political campus organizations, where you're really pushing the hardline view, tends to be alluring to those people who are under the conditions of uncertainty. Yeah, that's and, what I like about And I should say there's a lot of empirical evidence in this study. We're, we're just kind of quoting the results right now mm-hmm. and not the studies, but they, they did a lot of manipulation and scenarios to show that this this was a measurable thing. Yeah, I love the I love the experimental psych stuff because they can yeah. do things like uh, conditions where you induce uncertainty in some people, mm-hmm. make them unsure about things, and then give them a chance. And they tend to shift more in extreme directions. You know, in, in Israel, they tend to support harsh measures. The Palestinians support terrorist bombings. The more uncertain you make them feel. Mm-hmm. So I guess when we talk about like. Prescriptions of what to do about all this. This sounds like a tall order, but don't have a large population of people that doesn't have anything else going on in their lives that are uncertain about it. Exactly. I thought another interesting one they said is uh, encourage or set up social situations where people are members of many different groups. And this could even be true of atheists too. You know, you know, don't make your primary life, uh, your social circle, just centering around your ideology, right? That's how these totalizing groups take control is by managing every aspect of the life of their, yeah. of their followers. Uh, if you have somebody who's involved in various different social clubs or I guess another way of saying that has many different self-identities, right. that's just not as much of a risk. Well, I th- this leads to the, the one of the final things I wanted to mention about some of this like classic group psychology stuff is what you mentioned and that is, is that the importance of not having – of not being in an echo chamber with yeah. li- with like-minded people. And so our listeners are probably familiar with like, <laughs> like the – Listeners, <laughs> echo, echo. The, we are kind of the echo chamber that, the for way, our listeners. Can you put reverb on my voice? <laughs> the um, listeners might be familiar with the, the other social psych – You know, the, the big social psych experiments are pretty famous like the Milgram Obedience Study and the Stanford Prison Study. But in conformity research, the classic one is Ash's conformity paradigm. This mm. is where the one you see in intra-psych where – where a person has to judge different like physical line orientations and they go after a bunch of other people had given a clearly incorrect answer. What's this person going to do? Say, oh, you're all crazy. It's, it's this way. But what happens is that many people conform to the group norm. Right. If they perceive that six other people say the line is, is a different way than what – even if they actually see it and it's obviously wrong, they'll conform to the group. Uh, and there's a lot of evidence that's not just overt conformity, that the person literally inward to their own mind starts to see things in the way that the group does. Mm. Now, this has been often framed as being less, you know, with psychophysiological stuff. Like if you guys said this color is more pink than red, I might swing that way and mm-hmm. say, yes, it's pink. But morally, the problem, the troubling thing about this is that in moral situations, people's moral, moral views are flexible as well in a conformist paradigm. Uh, there was a study that was done recently by uh, the lead author's name is Kundu called Morality and Conformity where they applied the Ash paradigm to moral decisions. So the ones that mm-hmm. you philosophers like to talk about like the trolley scenario or the smothering baby one or, you know, or the um, uh, you know, ones where the Sophie's Choice scenario where if you had to give up a kid, is this right or wrong? But they had people make judgments of these scenarios and we have like data as to what the norm is in a trolley scenario, how many people mm-hmm. would allow five, save five people by allowing the tro- trolley to go off onto a sidetrack and kill one person. Well, when you do it in the ASH format where other people give a particular answer, even mm-hmm. if that answer is manipulated to be 
non-normative, like saying, "Oh, everybody would, uh, you know, shove the I'd person push off." The fat guy. I'd push yeah, the fat guy. Yeah, you damn right. I'd push the fat guy. <laughs> or you know, smother the baby to save people, or kill your kid if it would save the rest of your family. Uh, people, even when they give non-normative responses, it shifts the identity of mm-hmm. participants, wow. meaning that a lot of these crap we talk about with like your moral views are done rationally or independent. You just came up with a moral idea. It looks like it's flexible depending on your context, particularly if the context is unanimous and you're the only person giving an answer. Mm -hmm. The reason that fits in with what we're talking about is what do you think is going to happen if you're in a group, like in a park in Paris, where all your other buddies say, yeah, I guess it's okay to blow up people or shoot (laughs) cartoonists, whatever. Do you think that you're going to take some kind of moral stand and be the only person in a group to say, no, no, I don't think we should shoot cartoonists just because they insult our sacred values? It's probably not going to happen. You know, you just made me think of something, and I'll speak for myself here so that I don't get anyone else in trouble. But, you know, a big complaint about about the Charlie Hebdo situation, and I think it's an understandable one, is that, you know, Muslims say, why do I have to answer for my whole religion Hmm. every time – somebody who's a member of it does something wrong. And I totally get that, as I would not want to have to answer for every atheist out there. But there is a lot of information on the public support for these things. Yeah, that was one of Dan Finke's points, too. Yeah. That as he was pointing out, the difference in the – he agreed in principle that you shouldn't have to answer to members for actions of the members performed by people who are technically in your group. However, in this situation, there is content shared by believers that is – uh, just supportive in some yeah. ways, uh, even Dan, moderate Muslim. Uh, you can find links to these studies on Dan's blog that we'll be linking to at doubtcast.org. Which is org. a point Bill Maher made too, but, didn't it, when he was debating mm-hmm. with uh, on a show with like Ben Affleck and some of these other mm-hmm. people or, or um, yep. some of the other people that – And that, we've discussed these stats too. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say. Not, not yeah, but recently. they bear repeating real yep. quick. One third of British Muslims believes anyone who leaves Islam should be killed. Wow. That's pretty high. That's a, that's a strong stance, too. 78% of British Muslims support punishing the publishers of Muhammad cartoons. So, I mean, we're getting close to 8 out of 10 there. We already talked about on the show the Pew Research Forum's global stats on attitudes right. with 84% of Egyptian Muslims supporting the death penalty for leaving Islam 86 of Jordanians would agree, 30% of Indonesian Muslims would agree, 76% of Pakistanis would agree, and one in five Austrians, oddly enough. Um, But, you know, it's just showing that public support for this kind of uh, violence is is a lot lot bigger than we think to – Jump off your point, Luke, about not living in an echo chamber or what one of your colleagues calls the ash backwards paradigm. Um, (laughs) We really do need Muslims to voice – we really do need to hear them being the the voice against this. We need others – breaking the group think. Yeah, and it has to be a member of your own. A lot of group research shows that that having other people – support the minority makes it more likely people will speak up. So like in the Milgram and the Ash experiments, when there's another person in the room who refuses to go along, it increases the person's disobedience mm-hmm. or their nonconformity. But it also matters who that person is. So if you perceive that person yeah. as an outgroup member, it doesn't work as much. And that right. is, right. if a Christian, if you are in a room with Christians who say, oh, I don't think this is right, and you're a Muslim, it might not have as much effect as another Muslim. Well, yep. and also, if you're, a, if you're an extremist, fundamentalist Muslim, and a middle-of-the-road, moderate to liberal Muslim says this, they still may not be recognized Which as part is of the why, same group. I mean, not to be, again, this is 
is depressing, but this, which is not, why a lot of a, cases that fundamentalists target people within their own community even mm-hmm. are more vehemently and you know, there's like religious rules and satanification of heretics even right. more so than people who aren't even related to that is things like ISIS in we sort of look at them like she uh, branches of Sunni Shiite and Alawite I can't even keep them straight they're targeting the people who would be kind of similar to them most in many cases because they view the defection of somebody who should be an in-group member is perceived as being particularly an affront. Right. Yeah. They just yeah. assume that you and yeah. I are going to be lost causes. Yeah. Which would which would explain why, you know, moderates would be reluctant in some of these areas to, mm-hmm. to voice their concerns, but we need it anyways. And and by the way, listeners, please do not take what I'm saying uh, as to be repeating this ridiculous myth that where are the moderates? Why aren't we hearing from right. the moderates? They're all over the place. Yes. They are talking, and we need to elevate those voices rather than complain that they're not there. Right. Well, yeah, because the only ones that are given microphones exactly. are yeah. the extremists, and that's true. I mean, that's true of any group, really. We get the, the fringes. We have get microphones. More we have four microphones. Yep. Does that mean we're Does extremists? That mean we're, extremists? We're, we're militant when atheists. When you're an extremist, <laughs> do you know it? He. Today in polyatheism, we're going to begin our look at not a specific god, but a creation tale. This story comes to us from a place known to the Greeks as Mesopotamia and dates at least as far back as a thousand years BCE and probably hundreds, if not more, years before that in one form or another. However, it was only rediscovered and translated in the latter half of the 1800s CE. When first published by George Smith, the man who also recovered the Epic of Gilgamesh, by the way, it was known as the Chaldean Account of Genesis, and has since been called the Babylonian Genesis, or, as it is perhaps best known, the Enuma Elish. By the way, George Smith, he discovered the Epic of Gilgamesh, he found it in the wreckage of the library at Nineveh, translated it and his Chaldean Genesis and made multiple expeditions to the library at Nineveh and surrounding areas and still died by the time he was 36. That that's stuff insane. pisses me yeah. off. Mm-hmm. I feel like such a mental weakling when uh, I hear of that. Uh, that guy, there, there was multiple George Smith. That's a very common yes, name. So there's like a, six people doing oh, those it was, things, it was divvying a, it up. George it was Smith, really sure. just a bunch of George Smiths. <laughs> so uh, I've, I've got three more years to really make something of myself. And then <laughs> die of dysentery, which is the one part <laughs> that I feel like I can actually accomplish. <laughs> uh it's fitting uh, that our first polyatheism of 2015 is dedicated to the Enuma Elish because um, a recitation or perhaps even a performance of the piece was a standard part of the Babylonian New Year Festival. So, Happy New Year, everyone. Uh, the tale opens with the words, When from on high, or when from above the heaven had not yet been named, which gives us the title Enuma Elish, literally the, the first words of the text. In the beginning, nothing exists, for nothing has been named. Creation through the power of language is a recurring theme in many world mythologies, including multiple Egyptian creation tales, as well as the neighbors and frequent cultural appropriators of the Mesopotamians, the ancient Hebrews. It's no mere coincidence that the god of the Hebrew Bible uses Cratio ex specio. Full confession, I may have just made up the Latin there. What I've read on that 
it wasn't creation ex nihilo. That that's a relatively modern reading of it, in that's that it I was always too, a like, formless I, voidness. Ex- well, and, the, and there that's, was a watery, and, was, and that God was a, a fashioner. He was fashioning some pre existing material. The next thing I was going to talk talk about, which is the other very common mythic trope, where everything starts out with water or okay. a an okay. abyss or chaos sure. or this soupy mixture which is what we see in Genesis from and like it's what we from see in, goo in to you from the zoo yes and in fact in the Egyptian uh, stories as well but the but the actual separating of that water or abyss or void or mm-hmm. whatever term you want to use occurs through the power through of speech. language. Okay. So, yes, it's not exactly uh, Kratio ex nihilo. There's actually okay. – there is something there. Modern Christians don't like to think about that yeah. too closely. Well, yeah, they yeah. just misread yeah. their text. Exactly. So uh, this swirling mass here in uh, this text contains both everything and nothing and is made up of the primeval gods Apsu and Tiamat. Apsu is the god of fresh water, and Tiamat is the goddess of salt water, because, of course, Mesopotamians knew very well that there were different types of water, or sweet water is what they would call it instead of Who's the god of bottled water? Dasani. Uh, (laughs) I am Dasani. And uh, there is actually Mumu there as well, and he represents uh, vapor clouds maybe he's mumu he's this mumu he's a vaping god yeah he's just a very large <laughs> nightgown god yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> he's this weird almost vestigial figure who basically functions as the smithers to apsu's mr burns you're wonderful <laughs> sir the, that's a great uh, creation yeah apsu and tiamat's waters mingle together and they start producing yeah. more gods who generally show up in male-female pairs. We don't always get both names, but that's typically how it's going, with each pair surpassing their older siblings in power and in stature. When the sky god Anu begets or begot, or however that works, the god Enki, he is the most powerful of all the gods thus far. Enki, an important player in a lot of Mesopotamian tales, including Gilgamesh, is also known to some as E, that's E-A, and possibly is the same god as Nudimud, which is uh, my favorite name for a god. Yeah. <laughs> Nudimud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I want to read about some gods. What, what are you uh, thinking of? Uh, I'm, I'm in a Nudimud. <laughs> Uh, Enki and the rest of the the younger generations of gods uh, start doing what kids do best, and they annoy the crap out of their parents. Apsu and Tiamat try to get the kids to sit down and shut up for a few minutes and stop asking what's for dinner so Daddy can get his work done without everyone simultaneously singing songs from Frozen while fighting with their sisters and insisting that I watch this hilarious Vine by Taylor Oakley and give them money for a dozen field trips all at the same time. Whoa. Okay, that... Sorry, that was a lot of stored up Take uh, a deep breath. (laughs) Deep breath, deep breath. Anyway. (laughs) Their peaceful means of calming the children prove fruitless, as they so often do, so Apsu proposes a more final solution. Really, really late-term abortion, I like to call it. (laughs) Tiamat is horrified by the idea that they would kill their own children and grandchildren, but good old yes-man Mumu agrees with Apsu, and thus a plot is hatched to wipe out all the kids so Apsu can take a nap from time to time. The young gods overhear their plan and fall into despair. 
Luckily for them, Enki is more powerful even than Apsu, and he casts a spell of protection on the gods before casting a spell of sleep on Apsu. And again, we have the power of language being the key here. Mm-hmm. While Apsu got the first good sleep he'd had since the kids were born, Enki sneaks in, steals his crown, and kills him, taking on the role of the freshwater god for himself. Enki also imprisons Mumu by hanging him from a rope in his nose. If I'm ever given the option to dangle for eternity in a subterranean cave by a rope in my nose, please just kill me. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll take the easy way out. <laughs> Uh, once Anki had seized power, he and his wife Damkina gave birth to a son. The son was named Marduk. And as fate, which he himself would eventually become master of, would have it, he surpassed his own father and every other god in power and prominence. But we'll pick up on Marduk's tale next time. Uh, by the way, the Enuma Elish is inscribed on a series of seven tablets. So far, we've made it through most of the first one. Oh, wow. Don't worry, though. There's a a lot of what's left is repetition, and literally all of the seventh tablet and much of the sixth is just a list of different titles given to Marduk. So we'll kind (laughs) of gloss over some of that stuff. Should be able to wrap this up in uh, one more polyatheism segment, so stay tuned for that. Until next time. Let's end with a quick props and shit list here. Starting out, Props, I guess, we'll give to uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, and not just for taking up the uh, gay marriage uh, arguments, which they will almost certainly have a decision about this summer, and gay marriage will be legal everywhere. Well, not everywhere, but the United States. But they uh, had a ruling about a case we talked about previously about beards in prison. Mm. That's right, beards. Did you guys see the uh, oh, John Oliver... When he had the dogs discussing that case? No. Had, oh, that was classic, yeah. Oh, my God. He replaced all the Supreme Court justices with pictures of dogs and justices and justice robes, video of them. Yeah. And every time they would sync their mouths with the, uh, with the <laughs> narrative. It was so good. It was all as a ploy to get people to actually watch Supreme Court uh, reporting. But it was amazing. It was really good. <laughs> Anyways, go on. Anyway, yeah, so uh, you may recall we talked about the Supreme Court case regarding a uh, gentleman's beard. Gregory Holt, also known as Abdul Malik Muhammad. Wait, so is he Muslim? You had to ask? Yeah. He used no, to be in this country. Yeah. That's a legitimate People question. always ask me that. I, I don't know why. <laughs> he used to be in the country. If it was beards in prison, it would always be a Muslim. But now with all you hipsters, and yeah. if, if listeners could see in the studio now, I'm the only beardless one. You hipsters, when you start to get incarcerated, then it becomes up and becomes uh, yeah. an issue. <laughs> and the Amish, of course, also known for Muslims, being Amish, imprisoned. and hipsters. Well, anyway, he wanted to be able to have uh, a beard in keeping with his faith. Uh, Arkansas wasn't going to let him because they have a rule that prisoners must be clean-shaven unless they have a medical reason, and then they could have a quarter-inch beard. And their medical reason, I believe we talked about before, was yeah, like, like eczema or yeah, skin, like some kind of cosmetic acne, reasons. Yeah, you know, like really lame excuses. So not not being embarrassed by your acne is good enough. Having a religious requirement to have a beard is apparently not good enough to right. the Arkansas prison system. And two lower courts agreed. Yeah, Until they it did. Was sent up to the Supreme the, Court. And I think the the reason why the lower courts upheld it was not so much that they thought the 
prison had such a good case. It was more of that they they wanted to allow the prisons to make yeah. their own security right, right. judgments. There's an extreme amount of deference to prisons, prison policies rights. because they don't yeah. want to try to tell them what to do. That They think they yeah. know what's best sure. at each prison. So. I think just about everybody who heard the state's case – thought it was ridiculous. Right. Uh, the justices openly mock the idea that you would be able – I mean their, their primary arguments were you could hide a weapon mm-hmm. in a quarter-inch beard, which does not seem very likely, uh, or that the well, prisoners could – I have could, seven pens in my beard right now. <laughs> yes. so, uh, well, just, your beard could say, house could an arsenal. fetuses. This, but, if this case would have been like the 1880s – the Supreme Court would have been had all these like flowing beards, and they would yeah. have thrown it out immediately <laughs> yeah. because yeah. they'd look at each other like, "My beard is six feet long, and so is mine." <laughs> I have my derringer in my beard, um, but yeah, uh, when we're talking a quarter inch beard, it, it's it's not a much. lot less plausible. They also said if they were to escape, we don't want them shaving their beard and then not being identifiable. Ooh, um, like that's, that's going to be the primary say. issue. Um, so yeah, the justices thought it was quite ridiculous, and uh, they decided uh, they ruled in favor of upholding uh, religious freedom in this case. Yeah. And and Alito wrote a really good response now, to it. Now here's the thing: you know, you've heard us complain on the show before about all the giveaways the Supreme Court has been doing to religious freedom, like mm-hmm. really extending it in ways that I think us on the show don't approve of. So allowing uh, family-owned businesses to deny health insurance coverage for contraception or uh, allowing prayers at municipal government meetings, uh, that's an extension of religious freedom that I think was Mm wrongheaded of the court. But I personally agree with this one. This is an extension of freedom of expression as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Alito pointed out too that – Quote, hair on the head is more plausible place to hide contraband than a half-inch beard, and the same is true of an inmate's clothing or shoes. Nevertheless, the department does not require inmates to go bald, barefoot, or naked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. fair points. And, and I like that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, did not uh, – it was a unanimous decision, right? Yep. She also issued a very brief statement of just clarifying how this case is different than – the mm-hmm. Hobby Lobby case. Yeah. Um, she said, quote, unlike the exemption this court approved in the Hobby Lobby case, accommodating petitioners' religious belief in this case would not detrimentally affect others who do not share petitioners' belief. Mm-hmm. So no one in prison is hurt by him being able to have a beard. As opposed to Hobby Lobby, where people are denied birth control. Yeah, I think they decided the right way. What if he carries birth control in his beard, though? Ooh, Ooh. then Alito would not like Mm. that. (laughs) That's for sure. One possible props that I'm looking forward to is the same cases being taken up in our in Saudi Arabia where they could have the Wahhabi Lobby case. Oh my gosh, <laughs> shut up. The Wahhabi Lobby. <laughs> Just occurred. Okay, go on. Uh, on our shit but if, list. If, but if you want to get a model for your figurative drawing at a Wahhabi Lobby, better shop elsewhere. <laughs> like Frank's. Uh, on the shit list, we have a UK court. That is um, forcing a man to attend mass. 
Yeah, we don't have much information on this. This was uh, sent to us by Jonathan Pierce, who writes for the Skeptic Inc. Network. He works for the Skepticule podcast. Yeah, yeah, he's a friend of the show, great yep. guy, has written some really uh, cool things. One of his co-hosts is being forced yeah. to attend Mass as part of a uh, a divorce a settlement. Divorce settlement. We, we don't have corroborating evidence and all of that, but... We can't, and, and we should say that part of the reason is this is still in the courts. Yes. So, uh, and this is family court. Yeah. This isn't something that's, that's going to be... Where it's to more eat. typical to keep it anonymous. Yes. Um, um, and in fact, Anonymous Steve is the name of uh, uh, the gentleman in question. But the interesting thing here is that essentially what it comes down to is when he has his children, he is supposed to take them to Catholic Mass. Specifically a Roman Catholic Mass, Roman Catholic Mass on Christmas because for some uh, unexplained reason, he does not get them on other weekends. So it's Christmas is the one definitely, but there's a lot that's unclear about all of this. Well, some of the judges' comments, uh, again, we don't really have the context, but they kind of – they hint at that he may have not been given weekend visitation precisely because Because they perceived he wouldn't take the kids to church. And this is Mm. not an issue that either Steve or his ex-wife brought up. Right. This was brought up by the judge who also brought up his own Roman Catholicism into the conversation. Yeah, which is strange. And the the, the wife herself doesn't take the kids to church all that often, maybe occasionally. But yeah, I mean, it wouldn't make it better, but you could maybe understand the situation a little bit more if it's kind of vindictive parents and well, you know, or if, fighting over the religious identity right, of their right, kids. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you have um, physical custody, then you get to make yeah. certain decisions that the other parent doesn't. And believe me, I've been through all but of this. This was apparently just the judge's idea. And mm-hmm. the, the really disturbing thing is since you know judges legislate from the bench all the time, I'm, I'm sure it's no different in the UK than it is in the US mm-hmm. in, in that regard. But what's disturbing about this is, you know, it went through an appeals process and the appeals court accepted the lower court. They didn't overturn it. So mm-hmm. now it's kind of precedent yeah. in the law. Mm. And I don't know, but I'm guessing many, many Brits and many members of the UK would not want to know that there's a legal precedent that could allow a judge to require them to go to church okay. in order, a, in a order to see – kind of yeah. church too, not even In order to see their children. Are. Yep. Yeah, taking the religious observance over family traditions for, you know, holiday celebrations and all that. It's so. disturbing and, um, yeah, it, as more information comes out, um, we'll, try to, we'll try to talk about this story in more detail later. Brief props. Uh, so I don't know if you guys have been following this story, but uh, they've just discovered that they have a technique now that they can view – do you know the um, oh, yes, Pompeii scrolls, yes. uh, Herculaneum scrolls that were yes. carbonized by the pyroclastic flow of the volcano eruption? Yeah, so yeah, they have yeah. a, a library that's basically preserved intact. The problem is that the scrolls made of the scrolls made of papyri were sort of burned and singed into yeah. coal-like lumps. And every attempt to open them has just resulted just in powderizing it. and flaking. Uh. But – now they have this scanning sort of x-ray stuff mm-hmm. that's so detailed that they can detect ink, formerly ink, uh, on mm-hmm. the letters of the, of the, you know, in the Greek, whatever, in Roman, Latin language on the, some of the documents. And they think that they can develop a program that will distinguish between the different layers in the circular yep. thing. And actually print out the <gasps> Read them so without <laughs> – Potentially – and this is the library that's yielded copies of things yes. like we talked about in the show before, the, the Lucretius – uh, They're mostly Epicurean or, texts. So if that's there can the be – which we don't if have you don't, lost texts from Epicurus – 
possibly. If, for our non-philosophy people who don't know, you know, Epicurus was he he was the one who advanced a lot of the arguments against God, more of a kind of deistic view. He was also one of uh, one of the first to really promote uh, hedonism as a moral philosophy. You know, not like spring break. Hedonism. He was an Epicurean, uh, right? <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, he adopted. Uh, we don't really have this long, more secular past of philosophy. We don't have a lot of, and there are just stacks of these things that they have. If they could read them, that is so cool. Ancient or, history is going to get really interesting. I don't know the number, but like, think of all the plays that we don't have that are referred to by some of the classic Greek oh, playwrights that could we, be there. We or have we have a lost fraction document. of Greek plays. Uh, left that have made it down the, I mean, a, a few dozen as opposed to the hundreds that existed. So th- this is premature. Maybe this We don't know what so they're cool. going to get, but if they can read some of those scrolls, that might fill some gaps in classical It's going to turn out just to be grocery lists. Yeah, it's, Feta. What they've basically found in Pompeii has been a brothel in every corner. So yeah. just be like this, sex manuals and things like that. It's the Heidi Fleiss well, of Well, from uh, this Pompeii. we can tell that the Epicureans really were Epicureans. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to do it for us this time. Until next time, check us out at doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts, um, where you can interact with us on the blog. Uh, you can also make a donation through PayPal. Uh, folks have been doing that. And some folks who don't like or have PayPal um, have figured out how to mail stuff to us. Please no <laughs> arsenic or ricin or letter bombs. But you can contact us by mailing to uh, Public Reality Radio, which you can find the address right on Public Reality Radio's website. So anyway, and of course you can contact us at doubtcast at gmail.com. Check out our YouTube and Facebook and Twitter at slash doubtcast. And we'll be back soon with more Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. And that's exactly what the issue was. That's why Viacom was very comfortable. Uh-oh, we lost Dan. Dan, are you still there? Hello? Hello? They got to him. (laughs) 